You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. This idea of doom scrolling, which is what a lot of us are getting caught doing, which is popping onto the news numerous, numerous times a day and scrolling through with our fingers uh, at every headline of everything that's going wrong and falling apart and uh, you know, the sky's falling down. And many of us have normalized this process throughout the pandemic with all this time in our hands to be scrolling through the web and um, noticing and maybe even feeling a bit lost about what to do about the enormity of these problems. You know, it just seems so big at times and so varied and numerous. And so this talk is like another one in probably a long line of talks that you've been listening to or giving about how we might find our way and what do the teachings offer us from our tradition that maybe guides for us uh, as we figure out how to respond in an appropriate and caring and healing way to the kind of um, difficulties that we're seeing as we scroll through all of the bad news we're all being inundated with. So, you know, let's start with some truth-telling, right? I mean, it's true that if you look what's happening in our country and around the world, things are not great. And if you're not disturbed by that, uh, you either uh, aren't paying attention or you're pretty, you know, calloused, right? So I think we're all feeling really disturbed by so much of what we're seeing. And one could come to the conclusion, and this has happened at other times of pandemic throughout you know, history, where society comes to believe that we're caught in the grips of this horrible downward spiral in society. Some people say, we're caught in the grips of a self-harming, suicidal juggernaut, I read recently, of history. And, you know, that's a pretty sobering idea. You know, are we? And if we are, what do we do about it? But at the same time, oh, I'm sorry, I just got a message that my internet is unstable. Do you, am I there? Can you give me a thumbs up? Yes? Okay. Great. At the same time, I think... If you're reading and, and, and searching the web, you might also be aware that there are indeed massive movements afoot that are attempting to liberate society from that juggernaut. And um, it's important for us to notice them too and to pay attention to them. And maybe many of you are already involved in some of those movements but people are organizing in massive numbers, you know, to heal these wounds in society through wise and radical mass action. A lot of that's happening on the web. Some of it's happening in person. Uh, some of you may be aware that there are a number of, for example, um, Buddhist election retreats going on online right now. We're offering one next week. Um, I've participated in some already where in the context of Days of reflection or zazenkais were taking time to quietly write letters in massive numbers to get out the vote this fall. And tens of thousands of letters are now coming in. 
So there's these kinds of radical mass actions going on by many of us all, all over. And this is a really hopeful and helpful thing. I read recently that there are some estimates, some people are saying that there are more people engaged in possible, positive, positive, I'm sorry, positive social change movements now than ever before in the history of humanity. And these are people just like you and me. They're engaging in active hope in their neighborhoods, in their networks, and sometimes in very vast networks that include people from very many different walks of life. And things can be changing. I'm sure many of you were moved by uh, some of the words said by and about John Lewis in recent weeks uh, when he died. And he wrote that you know beautiful piece that got published posthumously on the day of, of his memorial service uh, in the New York Times. And uh, one of the things he said reminds me of something that a teacher said to me when I was preparing to receive the precepts, which is a process we're in here at Birdloaf Mountain. A lot of our students are preparing to receive the precepts this, this fall. But this teacher said, you know, John Lewis said, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and to stand up for what you truly believe. I urge you, he said, these are his kind of parting words to us. I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and to stand up for what you truly believe. And it seems to me that we're in a time where this is really good guidance for us. It seems so important. And I was thinking about, in thinking about this talk, I was going to talk a little bit about activism and some of what I think we have to pay attention to as we engage in activism. Maybe we'll come back to that, or maybe there'll be another time to think about some of those things, because I'm sure many of you are considering what does it mean to act up in an effective way uh, in this world, and, and I do some activism as part of my own practice. But I think I want to pick up some guidance. You know, John Lewis gave us good guidance, and um, Zen Master Dogen gave us some good guidance, too. And I want to pick up on some of his teachings as we think about uh, our own role in how to engage with this complicated world right from where we are and the role of practice itself in disrupting this juggernaut we seem to be caught in. And so, you know, if you're getting up in years like me, um, short lists are really helpful. And Dogen's list is luckily rather short. And so I'm going to go through um, four guidances that he gives us. You may be quite familiar with them already. And I might even, if we have a little time, talk about um, Zazen itself as a disruptive practice in our society. And then um, maybe we'll, I'll put up on the screen uh, a metta sutta prayer that we say together, and we can say that together as a way to just connect our sanghas together uh, in a nice way to end things. So that's how I think um, the remaining time will go, if, if that's okay. Um, so, so I already introduced this word, disruption. And uh, this is a word that uh, 
I learned about when I was working in the AIDS epidemic. Um, for many years, you know, we were trying to disrupt uh, uh, infection rates and disrupt ways of thinking that were influencing people's vulnerability and all of that. I also um, remember, and I'm sorry for the dinging, I don't know exactly how to turn that off. Um, let me see if I can. Uh, I was also introduced to the notion of disruption when I worked in community philanthropy, uh, and we were doing a lot of social justice philanthropy, and we would talk about using philanthropic capital to disrupt harmful systems in communities and society. And I remember during that time reading um, from the you know, mega consulting firm McKinsey that uh, disruptive technologies are, and I quote, advances that will transform life. Disruptive technologies are advances that will transform life, business, and the global economy. So disruptive technologies are, you know, can suddenly reveal to us, to people who maybe haven't been noticing certain things, they can suddenly reveal to us a new way of seeing. And in doing so, disruption or disruptive processes dis kind of transform the status quo, and they create the opportunity, right, for a new normal to emerge. So that's what's happening with disruption, is we're disrupting an old way, and we're creating the opportunity for a new way, a new normal to begin. Recently, um, I had a fun conversation with Sharon Salzberg uh, for her podcast. And uh, she had interviewed me for her book, which is coming out. And so I'll plug her book for her, where she talks to a bunch of people who've been doing social engagement and activism. And um, I have a practice in the Bernie Glassman tradition of uh, doing street retreats and working in homelessness and bearing witness on the streets. So we had a nice conversation about homelessness and my own relationship to that issue. And toward the end of the interview, she asked me, so why do you practice Zen or something like that, she said. And what popped up for me there was that I thought that Zen was a, f a, f a practice that was fundamentally disruptive, that it upends the way we see things. You know, when Zen, you know, we know all these Zen stories, right, that have an element of surprise in them, that uh, kind of challenge or suddenly knock us out of our status quo ways of thinking. You know, right, the famous story of what's the most important teaching? The student asks the teacher, and the teacher says, you know, have you had your supper? Um, so in that little moment, a disruption of this kind of habit energy we often have, that we get caught into where we think we kind of have to push against the same old question, the same old way of seeing things. And, you know, when done well, as a good Zen teacher, right, helps us kind of break through some of that old habit energy so that something new, a new energy becomes available, right? So the barn burns down and now we see the moon. So we get a new view on things, a new openness, a new kind of clarity because we've let go of some old habitual way of seeing our lives and the world. So I think if Zen master Dogen 
was a 21st century Silicon Valley millennial, which he wasn't, but it'd be fun to imagine him in that kind of a role. I wonder if he might have written an essay called something like The Four Disruptive Technologies of the Bodhisattva. So Dogen wasn't a Silicon Valley millennial, but he did write an essay that I think is about disruption. And it's a very famous one. Maybe you've studied it already. Sometimes it's called The Four Embracing Dharmas of the Bodhisattva. These are the four guidances of a Bodhisattva. So in it, he asks us to consider how enacting these four very specific bodhisattva actions in daring and energetic ways might, his, a quote from him, transform the destiny of the world. This is a wildly disruptive way of thinking, how engaging in four practices energetically and in daring ways might transform the destiny of the world. So you can't transform the world without disruption. In some ways, Dogen's words, they foreshadow people like Robert Kennedy, who in 1966 said, each time a person stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he or she sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring. Those ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. So this is a call to disruption in our tiny ways, in our little ripples, in very specific ways that we might practice with one another, that there are ways that we might sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance and systems that continue to perpetuate suffering in our world. So this is one of my favorite Dogen essays. In some ways, it's one of my favorites because it is, by Dogen's standards, unusually accessible. <laughs> like, it's really pretty easy to understand there isn't a whole bunch in there that, um, you know, as Dogen can sometimes be, like, what's he talking about? What is that image or metaphor? This is such a practical teaching. And for that reason, I really love it, and it's kind of a go-to teaching for me. And I really recommend you read it at some, at some point. And the wonderful book written by a colleague of ours, uh, many of you may know him, Alan Hozan Sanoki, who wrote a beautiful book called The Bodhisattva's Embrace, where he uh, looks deeply into this teaching. Uh, so Dogen suggests that there are four daring bodhisattva actions, that if we were to be fully committed to them, we could transform the world and give peace to others, he says. So he eloquently writes about giving, loving speech, beneficial action, and identity action. And I want to say a few words about each one of these and just a tiny little um, hint of what Dogen tells us about each of these. It is not a long essay of Dogen's. So again, pretty accessible, and I recommend you take a look at it. 
Giving, says Dogen, is the most essential practice of a bodhisattva. And you know, I think we're all bodhisattvas in training, right? We're all trying to do our best to enter into the hell realms of this world and to bring flourishing uh, every, you know, to every, every, everywhere we go, to everything we touch. And you all just chanted the four great bodhisattva vows. So this is our essential practice. Giving, he says, is the most essential practice of a bodhisattva with that kind of a vow. At minimum, he says, we should give really simple things, like our attention. We should be able to give, in a spirit of generosity, friendship. And we should give, as many of us are already, material aid to those who are in need. Like, these are the fundamentals of giving in our lives. This is what a bodhisattva does. They just give attention, friendship, and material aid to those who need it. Simple. We can do that, you know. He also says bodhisattvas give spiritual teachings, that they give the opportunity for community to form, and they give organization to chaotic efforts. And I'm paraphrasing him here. But I think this is a really interesting list. Giving spiritual teachings, that doesn't surprise us so much. Giving spiritual friendship, you know, being wholesome, noble friends to one another. Giving community to one another, of course, sangha, the third treasure that embraces the other two. Of course, he would say we give sangha, community, a sense of belonging and connection to one another. But he says we also give organization to chaotic efforts. And I think this is so important when we think about how we use our time to really help bind together efforts so that the power of them can be amplified. The power of each individual can be amplified and we can do more and reach greater heights. And then he says at the, toward the end of this section on giving, which is the longest section uh, that he writes about in the essay. He says, at the highest level, what we give is fearlessness. That's the great gift of a bodhisattva in the suffering world, that we give fearlessness, which is different than just mustering up courage. This is being able to meet the world wholeheartedly connected to it. And in that sense, we're fearless as we engage it. And I think... I, I think of Dogen as being disruptive because throughout this essay, he talks in political ways at times. 13th century Japan was a time where there was a lot of social unrest and upheaval. And he was, of course, connected to, affected by, and trying to influence what was going on in the world around him, just like any of us are. And so often he drops into this essay little political directives, you know, or allusions to political leaders. He's trying to signal something wholesome to those who have a lot of power and authority. He says, even if we happen to be people, even if we rule the four continents, so even if we're rulers, right? Even if we rule the four continents, in order to offer teachings of the true way, we must simply and unfailingly not be greedy. So imagine if there were teachers in our world today signaling that kind of message to the leaders of our country and our communities. 
that the most important thing for you to do as a leader is to simply and unfailingly not be greedy. And this would disrupt, certainly it would disrupt one of the great political leadership narratives of our time, which doesn't seem to be about not being greedy. It seems to be about some other motivations. Dogen's teachings, as you know, echo teachings in the Lotus Sutra and many other teachings. Uh, when I read his lines in, in uh, this essay about giving, I think of Shantideva's words, where he says, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. In more modern language, I know you have an interfaith, uh, interspiritual and interfaith aspect to your sangha there, and I do too in my own life. People like Father Greg Boyle, uh, the Jesuit who founded Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, he's often a person I turn to for inspiration. And he says something similar to Shantideva and to Dogen. Uh, and he says it a lot simpler. He says, we get stuck when we make stuff about us. We get stuck when the stuff is about us. And this is the spirit of not being greedy, right? To let go of making stuff about us, which is so hard because, my gosh, we live in a society where it's all about us. And in this way, our practice is to disrupt that habit energy of making it all about us and to simply not be greedy. So giving is disruptive because it's living in a way that makes it not about you. And this is how we in Zen, right, talk about freedom, that that freedom from having it be all about you opens us up to love. It makes us open-hearted, makes us kind. It allows us to engage in a kind of supportive affection to one another, selfless and supportive affection with one another. And so the minute we decide that it's not about me, a new energy emerges, a giving energy, a bodhisattva energy, a healing energy, a disruptive energy of giving. And Dogen says, this isn't abstract. It's not just the theory. He says, to launch a boat or to build a bridge, right? These very kind of just physical things to do. To launch a boat or build a bridge is the practice of the perfection of giving. When we carefully study the meaning of giving, he writes, receiving our body and giving up our body, which means being born and living and even dying, these are offerings, he says. Earning a livelihood and managing a business, says Dogen, from the outset is nothing other than giving. So he's calling us to orient all the activities of our lives, day and night, whatever we do, earning our businesses, earning our keep, making money for our families, taking care of our communities, building infrastructure where it's needed, whatever we seem to be engaged in, all of this is nothing other than giving. So I could say more about this. There's a lot to say about giving. He says a lot about giving. Like he even indicates that we should be giving without any kind of strings attached, you know? 
and that really cutting the strings that are attached is a radical practice. You know, Sometimes we give strategically, like with this idea that we're going to get something back. And he's like, really giving is being able to give without strategizing for a way to get something in return. And this is a kind of selfless giving. And he says he knows how difficult it is to uh, change our minds about this, how difficult it is to develop new ways of thinking about this. He writes at the end of this section, the mind of a sentient being is difficult to change. Well, no kidding. <laughs> and it's, it's Dogen being sweet to us and saying he knows this is challenging work to always be generous. So imagine, you know, what it would be like in our world, in your life, in your community, in your family or network, to simply and unfailingly be committed to not being greedy. What, what would it allow you to see in the world? What would change if you just let go of all the strings attached to your old ways of doing generosity? disrupted those old ways, what would you notice and see in the world if you were to simply and unfailingly not be greedy? The second disruptive practice that Dogen gives us is loving speech. And this seems also really timely for us. Loving speech, says Dogen, means first of all, to arouse a compassionate mind when meeting living beings. So it's like, Prepare yourself as you meet people to engage with them in loving speech. Loving speech means, first of all, to arouse a compassionate mind when meeting living beings and to offer caring and loving words. In general, he says, we should not use any violent or harmful words. And this carries a lot of weight for us as we think about what our behaviors look like these days. Sometimes in my own doom scrolling, I get to this place where I'm seeking out friends who have the same enemies that I do. You know, people like Brene Brown have called this common enemy intimacy. And we kind of bind, we bond around how stupid that world leader is, uh, about what an idiot they are. Uh, and we become very disparaging toward the people we disagree with. And I'm really challenged sometimes by this, to use words that are not violent, that are not harmful, that are compassionate. And we're hearing this all the time around us. It's so reinforced in our society, right? Everywhere we turn, almost everything we read and hear, there's this kind of blame and shame and disparaging language toward everyone who isn't quite like us, who doesn't see the world the way we do, or doesn't agree with how things should go. And it teaches us that words are really powerful. And once they're spoken, they really can't be taken back. I'm, I'm feeling like we live in a time, and maybe this has always been the case, I don't know, but we live in a time where words are often used as weapons, aimed at shaping and at shaming and harming others. That they're used to build walls and to further separate us from one another. 
We often use words strategically to pierce into the heart and to harm those we disagree with. But this doesn't need to be so. I think we can disrupt this. Words, says Alan Sanuki in his beautiful book, are sounds that break into the world from the absolute. They come from the silence of oneness. They germinate out of the ground of silence that embraces us all. Dogen says that we should do our best to, quote, speak with a mind that compassionately cares for living beings as if they were our own babies. Imagine, how do you speak to your babies? This is the mind of loving speech. This is how we should prepare to speak to others when we meet them. He says, this is loving speech. So it's a question for us, is can our practice lead us to a place where our words emerge out of love? And then he, Dogen, in this brilliant way, throws us um, the zinger. He leaves this part of the essay by saying, we should really consider the true power of our words. He says, you should study how loving speech has the ability to turn around the destiny of a nation or transform the world. So imagine for a moment, if we really believed that we have the power in our words to turn around the destiny of this nation, what would we say? What would you say if you truly believed that your words could turn the destiny of this nation? I think this is a very disruptive and powerful practice for us. The third disruptive practice that Dogen talks about is beneficial action. And this is not just charity. Charity is often about the power we have because of our privilege and our material well-being. Charity is often about the power we have of um, having something that we can, at our discretion, give to somebody else. And that sets up a funny little dynamic. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be charitable and we shouldn't give from what we have. We should. But I think beneficial action is also asking us to be mindful of the odd dynamic of I have something um, and I have a kind of power and I can decide when to give it to you, which in some ways maintains the status quo of the power divides of our society. We think a lot here about economic injustice, and this is a big thing. Our philanthropic lives, our charitable lives, sometimes those things, re, sometimes those practices of being philanthropic, as, as, as um, virtuous as they are, can sometimes reinforce the power difference between the haves and the have-nots. And beneficial action, I think, is about disrupting that in a way. Beneficial action, says Dogen, doesn't hold anything back, he says. He says, ignorant people may think that if we benefit others too much, our own benefit will be excluded. This is not the case, he says. Beneficial, beneficial action is the whole of the Dharma. He, like, ramps up the language on us. Beneficial action is the whole of the Dharma. 
it benefits both self and others widely. There's a kind of equality. It benefits both self and others, I might say, equally. And this is what characterizes beneficial action. It undermines that old way of separating the haves from the have-nots. Beneficial action is done simply for the sake of action itself, without concern for any specific outcome or benefit in the recipient or any merit for ourselves. And I think we should be careful. You know, we're, we're, we're a society that thinks a lot about burnout and um, giving too much. And we have to, of course, be thinking about that. But I think sometimes maybe we, we hold ourselves a little bit too much with kid gloves. You know, that sometimes we think of ourselves as more fragile than we really are. And I think we should be careful about thinking of ourselves as too fragile to act or that we'll deplete ourselves if we offer too much or if too much is taken from us. And I think this is what Dogen is getting at. Like he says, ignorant people may think that if we benefit others too much, our own benefit will be excluded, that somehow we'll be harmed in some way. And I think he's offering us a really valuable warning here to be careful of that mind. I think we practice at the edge, you know, we learn, certainly, we learn how to not go too far over that edge. It sounds like we have to pull back. But we're also learning in these practices as bodhisattvas disrupting the harmful systems of our world. We have to learn how to step up to the edge, right up to the edge, to give to the point where we think maybe we're giving too much. And I think this teaches us something, and it helps in some way for us to step up to that edge. I mean, it's... In this, in this part of the essay, too, it becomes very clear that Dogen, though he might not have ever heard of someone like Jesus, I don't know what he knew about Jesus or Western religion, but he channels for us the same message of love that Jesus gave. And he, again, foreshadows the message of Martin Luther King. He makes the case that the ripple effects of beneficial action equal not just our friends, they help not just our friends, but they also help our enemies. He says, we should equally benefit friends and enemies alike. We should benefit self and others alike. If we attain such a mind, we can perform beneficial action even for grass and trees and wind and water that we can disrupt the whole world. What a wonderful vision. And again, turning his political eye to things, Dogen writes of a person with power and privilege in the community who is, I think, if I'm reading this correctly, in his own process of awakening and is hounded by an inner drive to disrupt the status quo of the carefully protected world of the privileged. Dogen writes, three times, the old Lord stopped in the middle of his bath and arranging his hair. And three times he left his dinner table, which you kind of might imagine a Lord's dinner table being full. So three times he left his dinner table solely with the intention of benefiting others. And he tells us that we can, in fact, challenge our own privilege that we should listen 
to the inner voice that makes us get up from our own dinner table, from our own safe environments, with the intention of benefiting others. And Dogen says he aims to benefit not just his friends, but even his detractors. Dogen says he did not mind benefiting even the subjects of other lords. In this way, you should benefit friends and enemies alike. So imagine once again, if this was your approach to beneficial action in the world, if you let go of the idea that you might give too much and instead oriented yourself toward giving your all, knowing that in giving your all, it would equally benefit your friends and your enemies and yourself. What would that kind of action look like for us? And what if we really took deep into our bones that this kind of action is the whole of the Dharma, as Dogen says? And the fourth area Dogen speaks to is identity action. And this is a funny turn of phrase, and maybe it feels a little abstract, identity action. The other three seem quite practical, but this one, identity action, may not be immediately obvious to us. Dogen says, identity action means not to be different, neither different from self nor different from others. For example, he says, it is how in the human world the awakened one identifies himself with human beings. Because he identifies himself in the human world, we know that he must be the same in other worlds. When we realize identity action, self and others are one suchness, says Dogen. It seems to me that it's a radical act of solidarity to not be different from yourself and not be different from others. Dogen is saying it seems that when you see who you really are and accept your true nature, when you're neither different from yourself, you're nothing other than yourself, when you see who you really are, that what you will also see is that you are not different from others that that's what we see when we're truly ourselves. And Dogen goes on to say that this is precisely, that it is precisely because mountains don't refuse to be mountains that the mountains can reach great heights, which I interpret as if you are really you, truly and wholly being you, that you can reach great heights to be the true you. And when we disrupt the habit of rejecting who we really are, which we do so much, so often we reject this truth that we are everything else. And we enclose ourselves in our little bubbles and we think, this is who I am. But Dogen is encouraging us to disrupt that, to disrupt the habit of rejecting who you really are and to accept that we are boundless, dynamic solidarity. Or as Ramdas used to say, we are loving awareness. That being that, being boundless and dynamic, 
being loving awareness, Dogen says, great things become possible. So what does this mean practically? I mean, it's very challenging to really become this. And I think it means that we're always in a process of reinventing ourselves in our kind of practical everyday world, that we're always shape-shifting to meet suffering people where they are as them from within their real lives. I think this goes beyond mere sympathy or empathy. This is solidarity. And it's a deep sense, perhaps it's a sense beyond words, that we share completely in the experience of having a life, that this is what we share most fundamentally and completely with one another. A worker at Dunkin' Donuts, a politician, a preacher, a heroin user, a soldier, a disconnected youth, a president, a mentally ill family member, an unemployed mom, a monk, a sex worker, a computer geek, and the list goes on and on and on in endless time. Identity action. Being who you truly are, which is all of these beings, allows us, says Dogen, to reach great heights. Our Dharma grandfather, great-grandfather, Taizan Maizumi Roshi, summed it up this way, right? To see everything else as part of ourselves is wisdom. And when wisdom is truly realized, then compassion and loving kindness spontaneously arise as the functioning of that wisdom. So can you imagine how you might be in this world if you could let go of everything that separates you from others? and shapeshift into solidarity with them. How would you begin to walk in this world if that were the case? What would become possible if you could feel completely connected in that way? What heights become possible when you sit in the truth of who you really are? So those are Dogen's four embracing dharmas, four disruptive dharmas. And uh, I want to, do I, do I have, let me just ask, do I have just another minute to go on? Yes? Because I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't say a little something about Zazen itself as a disruptive practice. Our good friend Dogen writes in Bendoa, if a human being, even for a single moment, manifests the Buddha's posture in the three forms of conduct of body, speech, and mind, when that person sits up straight in the sacred action of just sitting, the entire world assumes the Buddha's posture and the whole of space becomes the state of realization. These are Dogen's words. So when we're sitting zazen properly, we are, he says, already disrupting and transforming the world. Silently and harmlessly, we stop creating new karma. 
in doing this and not moving, in not speaking or advancing any gaining idea, we do this very rare thing. We cease from adding to all the commotion of our world. Zazen in this way is the cessation of suffering. And in a sense, we can maybe consider that Zazen is a conscientious way of stepping out of the juggernaut. Zen teachings say that when we just sit in the posture of the Buddha, we are manifesting the realm beyond good and evil, cause and effect. Dogen says that just sitting is the Buddha seal of the body, speech, and mind. A seal means it's like the real deal. You put a seal on it. It's the real deal. It's the mark of authenticity. It's our natural state of dynamic solidarity. There's nothing to do in that natural state because after all, it's natural. Nothing more is needed. We just allow ourselves to be in dynamic solidarity. And in this sense, we stop being out of harmony. Our body stops moving and therefore it doesn't cause any harm. Our mouths don't open, so we don't speak words that can argue or offend people. And the mind doesn't chase after any material want or after any strategizing. It doesn't chase to conspire or manipulate anything. In the stillness and silence, we are our true selves. We're the real deal. We're radiating unity. So as a form of conscious pacifism and resistance, can I say this? That Zazen is beneficial action. That Zazen is a form of pacifism and resistance. Not only is it a practice that transcends the effects of karma, but Zazen puts our individual body and mind back into harmony. And in doing so, it mysteriously puts the world back into harmony. Maybe it's not so mysterious after all. I don't know. Maybe inner peace, an inner sense of immediacy and integrity, an inner sense of intimacy and authenticity ripple out into our relationships. And from that, loving action arises, disrupting business as usual, pointing to a new way, creating a new normal. So I know maybe Zen purists would argue with me about this, but I'd like to consider that in Zazen, we are enacting a profound form of nonviolent resistance. It's like being a tax resistor or a conscientious objector who chooses as a matter of principle to not feed the monster in any way, to not participate in the powerful cycles of violence at play in ourselves and in the world. And here's the beauty of this form of action. It is completely and always accessible to us wherever we are. It's an ordinary act imbued with extraordinary vision. And in this spirit, I'm calling up John Lewis again, who said, ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America by getting in what I call 
good trouble, necessary trouble. So my hope for all of us as Dharma practitioners that we take some bit of Dogen's guidance to us and we become good troublemakers, one and all. Thank you.